Hello friends and enemies, fans, stands, and simps. Welcome to the very first episode of Gil's Oddcast. I'm Gillian, pagan, pan, poly, vegan, kink-friendly, sex-positive, true-crime-obsessed, PCOS, ADHD mom of 15 fur kids, and four human spawn, Twitch streamer, artist, and goth kitten with depression and anxiety. Today's Monday. Um, since this is a new podcast, obviously... You probably don't know what that means. Um, <clears throat> this is going to be an overall chill podcast, a safe space where we can discuss a hodgepodge of subjects. It's early days and nothing's written in stone yet. My general idea is to present a twice-weekly podcast released on days when I don't normally stream. My plan is to do Murder Mystery Mondays, where we'll discuss true crime, cases, news, and other related topics. And Freaky Fridays, where it can literally be any subject discussed. I'm interested in various things, as you could tell by the listing of all the things that I'm into, and I am. Um, and I'll just pick a topic each Friday and run with it. Um, and it might get a little rambly uh, at times, but hopefully you'll find it endearing <laughs> and not annoying. Um, since this is the first episode and intro to Gillian and her thoughts, we aren't covering a true crime case, but a theory discussed often when we discuss serial killers and other violent criminals. The theory is the McDonald Triad. Now, if you're a um, true crime fan, you've probably heard it mentioned before. But before we actually get into the theory... Let's get into what exactly um, a serial killer is. When we discuss serial killers, um, it depends on your resources. But the definition is typically a person who murders three or more people, usually in service of abnormal psychological gratification, with the murders taking place over more than a month and including a significant period of time, commonly called a cool-down period, between them. Um, there's been debate among criminologists about the proper definition. So, when it was originally coined in the 70s by Robert Ressler, um, who was a BSU behavioral science unit um, investigator for the FBI. He originally defined it as involving at least four events that take place at different locations and are separated by a cooling off period. But the definition now has evolved. Um, the number of events has been reduced and even the FBI lowered the number of events to three in the 1990s. It's been faulted because it excludes individuals who commit two murders and are arrested before they commit more. Um, and individuals who commit most of their murders in a single location. So if you have someone who, you know, kills people over a week, but they, you know, it's all at the same place, it would not be considered a serial killer, according to that de definition. And that's where people get a little critical about it. Okay, so the definition put forward by the National Institute of Justice is one that scholars tend to go with, um, which according to them, um, a serial murder involves at least two different murders that occur over a period of time ranging from hours to years. So when discussing serial killers, there's a common theory called the McDonald Triad. 
it's, it posits that there are certain things that serial killers and violent offenders have in common in their past as a child. Um, so it it's three signs that can indicate whether someone will grow up to be a serial killer or other kind of violent criminal, which is being cruel or abusive to animals, especially pets, setting fires to objects or otherwise committing minor acts of arson, and regularly wetting the bed. It first gained momentum when the researcher and psychiatrist J.M. MacDonald published a controversial review in 1963 of earlier studies that suggested a link between these childhood behaviors and a tendency towards violence in adulthood. But it's been decades, and so now a lot of people are wondering if this is still a good predictor. So the reason why these three things were chosen, and there is a reason behind why each of these was chosen, is for the animal cruelty, he, McDonald believed that it stemmed from children being humiliated by others over extended periods of time. So the idea is these are people children can't retaliate against teachers, older siblings, adults in their lives. Um, so instead of acting out their frustrations um, towards these people because they can't, they instead act them out on animals to vent their anger on something that's weaker and more defenseless. So it will give a child a sense of control over their environment because they're not powerful enough to take action against the adults who may be causing them the harm or the humiliation. So the idea is, you know, they take it out on something that can't you know, defend itself. The fire setting McDonald suggested could be used for a way for them to vent feelings of aggression. Again, because they have humiliation from adults who they have no control over. So it's often uh, thought to be one of the earliest signs of violent behavior in adulthood is setting fires doesn't directly involve living creatures, but it can still provide a visible consequence that satisfies the unresolved feelings of aggression. And then when he was discussing the bedwetting, and when we talk about bedwetting, we're not talking about small children in bedwetting. Um, it's very common for children that are pre-potty training or just starting to potty train or just, you know, a little ways into potty training to wet the bed. But what we're talking about is bedwetting that continues after five years of age and for a number of months. So the idea is that this is also linked to humiliation from being, you know, abused or, you know, treated unfairly by adults in their lives, you know, or people that they can't take retaliation against. So bedwetting is a part of a cycle that may exasperate feelings of humiliation when the child feels they're in trouble for or embarrassed by the wetting of the bed. The child may feel more anxious and helpless as they continue the behavior, and this can contribute to them wetting the bed more often. So it's kind of a cycle, um, and it's linked to stress and anxiety. Um, so the accuracy of it has been debated almost since the beginning. McDonald himself didn't believe that it was a definitive link between those behaviors and adult violence, but 
if you are a true, gri- uh, true crime um, fan, you've heard them use it on things like Mindhunter and a lot of podcasts will talk about the McDonald tri- triad as being something to point out that a person could become a serial killer or a violent criminal. But when researchers have looked further into it, they have a hard time finding, um, finding people that have the full triad. Like each of those individual things are found in all, in all violent criminals and all serial killers. They've all got at least one of those. Um, but you got to remember these are behaviors in childhood that are caused by children feeling like they're not in control. So what a lot of people suggest is that abuse, rejection, and neglect by parental figures and figures of authority may play a role in these things occurring. So honestly, if you've got a child who's being abused, neglected, rejected, treated badly by parental figures and those in authority, you're going to have some kind of behavioral reaction to it. Um, And them becoming a serial killer or a violent criminal may be more due to that neglect, abuse, or humiliation, or rejection, or whatever. So it, it might not be that, that triad, because it's not in every single serial killer or every single violent criminal as a complete triad. But there are links between those things and violent criminals and serial killers because those are also linked to abuse, neglect, rejection, humiliation by those that a child doesn't have control over. Um, So there are some people that will go so far as to call it an urban legend. um, And Mindhunter pushed the theory into the public. And that's why we're talking about it right now. I mean, we probably wouldn't hear podcasts and hear other forms of media discuss the McDonald triad if it hadn't been brought up on a popular TV show, quite honestly. There's not many people actually researching what, you know, crime theories are and stuff when you're talking about this. So when you think about all of this together, a more accurate predictor of someone becoming a serial killer or becoming a violent criminal is probably the childhood neglect or abuse coupled with a predisposition or family history of violence or mental health issues and possibly brain injuries in youth that result in the damage of the orbital or prefrontal cortex, which regulates impulse control and emotions. Now, there's another discussion to be had there because I will tell you personally, as someone who has consumed a ton of true crime media. I read, I listen, and I watch true crime stuff. And I got it into it, into it very, fairly early. Um, my grandmother was into um, celebrity true crimes. So she had books that covered things like um, <sighs> Helter Skelter and other, you know, murders and crimes that occurred in celebrity circles because my grandmother was very much into celebrity she bought like those rags you can see at the um stores by the checkout that are all about the celebrities and what's going on in their lives and rumors and stuff i am not so much into that stuff but 
the true crime aspect of those books and those articles is what pulled me in to read them. Um, but yeah, so one of the things that you'll discover as you listen and consume more true crime media is you'll discover that quite often there'll be a mention of some kind of head injury, some kind of trauma to the head. Um, and I personally think that I think that that's a more accurate predictor than the McDonald triad because I think that at least in my own experience and this is just me talking shit because you know I am not a professional I will tell you that right now I'm not a professional but I will tell you from everything I've consumed media wise that has to do with true crime it seems more often than not that seems to be something that happens trauma to the head you have serial killers and you'll find out that you know they had either an accident or they had abuse that caused trauma to the head because if you do damage those those parts of your head the orbital and prefrontal cortex it is going to affect impulse control and emotions and having control on your emotions is part of what makes you able to not just rail off on people when you're upset or disappointed or whatever you know as we talk about this you know <laughs> An association between those traits that are in the McDonald triad, the urneurosis, your, your, your your neurosis? I always pronounce it wrong, you know, bedwetting, cruelty to animals, and arson. Um, even if there's an association between those traits, it do, it, between those traits, it doesn't imply causation. So. Again, it pulls us back to the idea that those are more likely to point out the parental abuse and the abuse is what makes kids more likely to grow up to be violent and become serial killers and become criminals and that kind of thing. But yeah, when we, you know, I thought that this would be a good jumping off point with the podcast because you're going to hear me discuss the McDonald triad. You're going to hear me discuss head injury because a lot of times in these cases those things come up so we'll you know when I notice it I will probably bring up the fact that those are things from the McDonald triad and that these are things that could be indicators of someone eventually becoming a serial killer um, I do have to say the first time I heard of it which was I believe on Mindhunter I'm not a thousand percent correct there um, sure if I'm correct there because like I said, I've consumed a lot of media since I was a child about true crime. So all I know is that it did get my interest and I started looking into it because I thought it was like an interesting theory. I mean, if that is if that was honestly like an accurate way to predict, imagine how well that could be used for things you could figure out that a child has these traits and get them the help they need. But the problem is, since it isn't really indicative of just who's going to become a serial killer or violent criminal, you know, you can't get them help with the idea that you're stemming off the, you know, this occurring. And having said that, I will say that children that display those traits really should be getting the help they need. I mean, as a society, unfortunately, with our healthcare system, it's not always easy 
to get help for yourself or your children. So often it does get neglected and uh, it's just very unfortunate. So we're, I'm going to take a quick break um, and we're going to come back and I am going to discuss with you guys something about Edmund Kemper. Um, if you don't know who he is, he's one of the serial killers that was covered on Mindhunter. And there's an interesting meme going around about him. So we're going to discuss that. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back, y'all. Um, if you've been on social media recently, you've probably seen this meme that's floating around. It's usually presented as a weird fact, odd fact, what the fuck fact kind of meme. And it has a picture of this big guy with glasses, mustache, short hair, dressed in prison garb. And it goes on to tell you that Edmund Kumper, who is an American serial killer, has recorded hundreds of of audiobooks including Flowers in the Attic and the Star Wars trilogy and that you may have been listening and enjoying them but wait a second okay that's patently not true um yes Ed Kemper did record hundreds of audiobooks while he was in prison he still is in prison by the way he still is alive um, but those books weren't for the general public It's not the whole story. I mean, a lot of times when you see a meme or something small snippet on online, it isn't the whole story. So the true story is that the Volunteers of Vacaville is a non-profit organization that began something called the Blind Project in 1960. The prison in which Kemper is being kept at decided to do an initiative with the Blind Project by having prisoners record audiobooks to help blind people. So the goal is twofold. It's being able to provide materials for the blind and visually impaired while also helping rehabilitate the individuals in the prison, providing them an opportunity to learn braille transcription and braille repair, as well as a number of other skills. As the VOV notes on their website, the project is ongoing and has provided hope for both those who are blind as well as those who are incarcerated. It's a way for people who are incarcerated to give back. Um, and it's one of the many programs y you know as you get to know me you'll get to know that I am very much saddened by the way our prison system works if you go to other countries they're doing much better work with their prisoners and their recidivism rates are way lower than ours programs like this are the reason why the recidivism rates for blind project workers are less than three percent compared to the general population so it's something that does help the prisoners that are going to be back in society and anything that's going to help make them better members of society is a good thing. Kemper is serving multiple life sentences. He's never going to get out of prison, but he did it to do something good. And um, the VOV project was very glad to have him while they did. Unfortunately, Kemper had a stroke in 2015 and it ended his work on these. I am going to try to include an excerpt 
after this little segment um, of him reading, I think, Flowers in the Attic for you guys so you can hear him reading. But um, just so you know, the prisoners that participate in the program can't have violence in their records while they're at prison. They have to have a GED or a high school diploma. And they've got to be extensively trained to do the work. But yeah, it's, it's a good program and it's helping people that are blind and visually impaired as well as those, in, those who are incarcerated. So it's good. Um, but that meme is very misleading. You did not get an audiobook that has Ed Kemper reading to you. Sorry, guys, if you were looking forward to it. Um, I think it creeps people out more than them looking forward to it. I really, you know, wouldn't be like, oh, my God, please let a serial killer read to me. But at the same time, I think if I found out, I wouldn't, like, be horribly upset especially if I know it's a program that's helping them as well as others um but yeah those books were not for general consumption they only went to blind and visually impaired people that are in that program in particular in California I'm pretty sure it's only California too okay so let me try to get you that excerpt so you can hear chapter one goodbye daddy Truly, when I was very young, way back in the 50s, I believed all of life would be like one long and perfect summer day. After all, it did start out that way. There's not much I can say about our earliest childhood except that it was very good, and for that, I should be everlastingly grateful. We weren't rich, we weren't poor. If we lacked some necessity, I couldn't name it. If we had luxuries, I couldn't name those either without comparing what we had to what others had and nobody had more or less in our middle-class neighborhood. In other words, short and simple, we were just ordinary run-of-the-mill children. Okay, and last but not least, Happy Halloween, y'all! All you muggles, Happy Halloween! Today is Monday, October 31st, so it is Halloween. As a lot of you know, I am a pagan witch. So for me, it's actually a Sabbat or a holiday. Um, and we celebrate it as Sawin or Sawin. Um, it is spelled funny because it is a Celtic word. S-A-M-H-A-I-N. And it's a pagan religious festival originating from ancient Celtic spiritual traditions. Um... In modern times, it is celebrated from October 31st to November 1st to welcome in the harvest and usher in the dark half of the year. Celebrants believe that the barriers between the physical world and the spirit world break down during Samhain, um, allowing more interaction between humans and denizens of the other world. So you'll hear a lot of us witchy people talk about the veil being thinner right now, and it's because the belief is at this point of time of the year the what separates us from the spirit world is much thinner and it's easier to communicate with spirits it's easier to invite them into your lives invite your ancestors now the ancient Celts um, marked Samhain as a fourth quarterly fire festival it would take place between the midpoint 
of the fall equinox and the winter solstice, which happens to work out to be around Halloween. Um, during this time of year, the hearth fires in the family homes were left to burn out, specifically on this night, while they went out to gather the harvest. Then the communities would get together and they would have these big old bonfires that they, spar that they sparked with a specific wheel that represented the sun. So they would do these communal community bonfires and they would have a big old celebration. <laughs> Druids would be there um, to officiate and they would sacrifice cattle and at the end of the night, the people that were celebrating, the participants would take a flame from that communal bonfire back to their home to relight the hearth that they had let go out earlier in the evening. The idea is, you know, the, you know, welcoming the sun into your house, the warmth, and, you know, sharing it with the community. Um, so when we talk about Samhain, um, you know, of course, there's drinking and merrymaking and fun and stuff, and there's also monsters associated with it. The Celts believed the barrier of the world, barrier between the worlds, was breachable. It was thinner. You, you know, creatures could come back and forth. So one of the things that they would do is they would leave offerings outside of the villages and the fields for fairies or she. Um, it was expected that ancestors might cross over during this time as well, and the Celts would dress as animals and monsters so that the fairies were not tempted to kidnap them. Because this was something that they were worried about. Um, there are specific monsters um, that are associated with the mythology of Samhain, including Puka, which is a shape-shifting creature. Uh, they receive harvest offerings from the field. The Lady Gwyn, which was a headless woman dressed in white who would chase night, night wanderers. And she was accompanied by a black pig. Um, the Dullahan sometimes appeared as impish creatures, sometimes headless men on horses who carried their heads. Sound familiar? There's, there's a very famous story from this time of year, um, which may have been inspired by that, that mythology that's gone back to the Celts. Um, they were riding flame-eyed horses, and their appearance was a death omen to anyone who encountered them. So you didn't want to see the Dullahan, because that would mean that you were going to die soon. Um, there was also a group of hunters known as the Fairy Host, and they might, uh, might also hunt Samhain and kidnap people. Um, similar to the Slua, who would come from the west and enter houses and steal souls. So... A lot of the worry was because this veil between the two, um, the two uh, places, the land of the living and the land of the dead, was thinner that these things could get through, um, or these things would take advantage of this fact that people would be looking forward to seeing their past and deceased relatives and they'd be more vulnerable to being kidnapped or being injured or being killed or whatever. Um, so, um, things changed as we got to the Middle Ages, Samhain included carving turnips, which they called jack-o'-lanterns. So that's, that's what 
evolved to pumpkins. It started out as turnips that were attached by strings to sticks and embedded with coal. So they would be glowing and they would have little faces in them. And if you've ever seen a carved turnip, they do look kind of cool. Um, but I do know that as a modern person, I appreciate the room that a pumpkin gives me to carve. Um, at the Gillian house, we just did ours this week. And it's always a fun tradition. Um, the Irish are the ones who switched it from turnips to pumpkins. Um, the other thing, uh, other things that occur during Samhain, uh, especially as we talk about modern times, is the tradition of a dumb supper. Um, which, although it started in the Middle Ages, people currently still do it. I've done it myself on Samhain. We usually, uh, up until a few years back, we used to host a party every single year with friends and family. And I would always lay out an additional place for our ancestors and our deceased loved ones. Um, and we would set it just like all the rest of the places and put food there as an offering. Um, the original tradition of Dumb Supper was... Um, was the food was consumed by celebrants but only after inviting the ancestors to join in the idea was to give you a chance to interact with those loved ones that have passed and your ancestors and let them catch up on what's going on with the family and everything um and then as we get into closer to you know modern times as we talk about 19th century america that's when we saw Samhain and Halloween kind of merge together. Um, and October 31st became known as All Hallows Eve or Halloween and contained much of the traditional pagan practices. Um, it was the Irish immigrants we can thank for bringing a lot of the traditions of the original pagan celebration of the Celtics over here to America. And I'm thankful to them for it. Um, Trick-or-treating is said to have been derived from an ancient Irish and Scottish practice. In the nights leading up to Samhain, in Ireland, something called mumming was done. And it's the practice of putting on costumes, going door-to-door, -door, and singing songs to the dead. And then cakes would be given to the people singing the songs as payment. Sound familiar? It's kind of like trick-or-treating, guys. <laughs> like, I'm glad we don't have to sing anymore. I would have been very not happy about doing that as a kid. Um, Halloween pranks also have a tradition in Samhain. Um, though back in ancient times, the tricks were blamed on the fairies. Um, which is no surprise because fairies, I know a lot of people think of fairies as like these cute Tinkerbell, you know, fluffy, fuzzy, friendly, warm things, but fairies are actually tricksters. They're little, you know, imps. They can, they can get troublesome if you're not on their good side. Um, a lot of pagans still make offerings to the fairies at certain times of year. Um, but yeah. And then as Wicca and other modern pagan traditions became more popular in the, in the U.S. especially, in the 1980s and 90s, um, Samhain became more popular again to celebrate, um, often as a fire ceremony, taking it way back to those ancient Celtic days. Um, and of course, honoring your ancestors. 
I'll tell you that um, whenever we did do a party, I always had an ancestral altar, like front and center. Um, and it would have pictures of dead relatives, usually my great-grandmother, my grandmother, um, my, you know, Wheels' father. Like, just about any dead loved one that you wanted to honor and celebrate. Um, so we would have a bunch of pictures on my altar. I have a main altar downstairs, and then I have a small altar space up here in my bedroom. The main altar space downstairs, I would put pictures of deceased loved ones and candles and a little offering chalice which is a little like wine glass and a little offering dish and I put a little wine in the glass or some other kind of spirits because spirits like spirits guys that's one thing as a pagan you you for offering liquids you generally offer alcohol um but yeah so I'd offer a little bit of liquid refreshment, offer a little bit of foods that we were eating that night on the dish um, at the ancestral altar. I would usually have candles burning and incense going. Um, this year, probably not going to do much. I've been having issues with my health and I'm dealing with that right now. So this year is going to be really low key, but yeah. Most years, Ancestral Altar, and since my mom passed in 2017, I moved the Ancestral Altar to our overpass. We have an opening between the kitchen and the dining room, which is much larger than what my altar space is. And my stepfather will actually bring my mom's urn over with her ashes in it. And I put her urn there with a picture of her propped in front of it. And then I have my other pictures of my other deceased loved ones and candles and incense and, and the offering dishes and all of that and that's what I do um and of course I like uh, blessings prayers that kind of thing dedicated to my ancestors um but yeah so it looks a lot like Halloween <laughs> but we call it Salween and it is considered an actual holiday for us um I hope you guys have a great Halloween or Samhain, depending on which you celebrate. And I hope you all stay safe and have a great time. Um, it's a wonderful time of year. I don't know if you guys know, but this is absolutely my favorite time of year. I love fall. Autumn is my favorite season. I like the crispness in the air. I love, you know, it not being super sunny. <laughs> I like the rain when it comes. I am definitely an autumn type of person. So I hope you all enjoy it and you're safe and have a great time. So I think that just about wraps us up for our first episode of Gil's Oddcast. I hope you guys have enjoyed it and enjoyed, you know, whatever you may have taken from this first episode. Like I said, we're going to do those Murder Mystery Mondays where we're going to cover true crime, either cases or other things that have to do with true crime. Today was just a little discussion on a theory. Um, and then a little discussion about a serial killer that there's some misinformation out about. Um, but I will be back on Friday with our Freaky Friday. And I am not sure what subject I'm going to do this week because it is the very first episode. So I am going to rack my brains a little more and figure out what we're going to discuss. Um, but keep an eye out for it. It'll be up on Friday. 
And I hope you guys have a great night and a safe week and just enjoy yourselves. I thank you for coming and joining me here and listening to me babble on about all the things that interest me. And I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Um, if you want to check out me playing video games, I do play four times a week on Twitch. Same name as I use here, Gillian, G-I-L-L-E-O-I-N. And I'll have links to my social media and Discord and stuff either on the front page of this podcast or in the description. So you guys can join up wherever you want to with me if you've enjoyed this. And if you're coming from my other places, I do thank you very much for coming and checking this out. You take care of each other. Take care of yourselves and have a great day. Bye, guys.